events that may be considered shocking. No one under 17 will be admitted. Hi, this is Perry Martin. I'm the DVD producer for Anchor Bay. Joining me is the film's producer, Mr. Richard Rubenstein. This is George Romero, sitting here with... Chris Romero, hi. And Tom Savini. And as you know, I'm Ken Forey, and I'm here with my compadres, and I would like to introduce... This is David Emge, Flyboy. And the beautiful... Galen Ross, Fly Girl. Hi, this is Scott Reiniger. You're listening to Zombie Cast, Duration of the Dead. This is Dawn of the Dead. My name is Travis Crawford. I'm a film journalist, former festival programmer. I've written about the works of writer-director George Romero in the past and have done commentary tracks for four of his films on Blu-ray. But despite those commentaries, obviously doing a commentary on Dawn is a daunting task. This is not only, I think, the defining film of Romero's career, even more than Night of the Living Dead, I would say. It is the defining zombie film. As Tom Savini himself has said, I think if you mention zombie film to someone, this is probably the first movie that comes to mind. Even more than Night of the Living Dead, even more than some of the things that have come along in uh, the wake of Dawn of the Dead, and we'll be talking about the other zombie films later, I think this is the one that instinctually comes to mind for most people. It is the biggest film of Romero's career. It is obviously a much-beloved hit. But before we go any further about Dawn of the Dead, let's, again, look at where Romero's career was at the point when the film was made. The interesting origins behind the film and the fact that Romero at that point really did kind of need a hit, quote-unquote, in his career. Night of the Living Dead, his first film in 1968, was obviously a huge success, but it was not in any sense a financial windfall for Romero or his partners in uh, Lightning Image or Image 10, the uh, company that they created for the production of the film. Once the distribution rights in the U.S. were sold to Walter Reed organization, Romero said that the film did reasonably well in terms of giving them profit participation in the first six to eight months of release. But he said after that, when the film died down, and of course you have to consider the copyright problems that plagued that movie, he said when it went to the midnight movie circuit and started to have a whole other life on the repertory circuit, he and his collaborators really didn't see any money out of that. Despite that, he was very reluctant to jump back into the horror genre after Night of the Living Dead. He spent about three years between Night and his follow-up project, which was a sort of ill-fated counterculture romantic comedy in 1971, lamentably titled There's Always Vanilla, which was not a success critically or commercially or in Romero's eyes either. He remains very dissatisfied with the film, never really had fond things to say about it. Apparently they began shooting before the screenplay had really been completed and they never really had a finished script locked in place. But uh, the two films he did after that, Season of the Witch was a film he did in 1972. It was originally called Jack's Wife. Later it was also retitled Hungry Wives when it was misleadingly marketed as a sexploitation film, which obviously it wasn't. I think that film, although it's sort of gotten some of its due in the years since, is still one of Romero's most underrated works. Not really a horror film, it's more of a feminist drama about a uh, middle-class housewife's sense of self-exploration that you know works itself out through kind of a flirtation with the occult. Season of the Witch, which is one of Romero's personal favorites of his films, was also not a commercial success, which is not a surprise. It's kind of a challenging film. It's a little more surprising that the film he did after that, The Crazies, in 1973, was not a hit because the template is very much there for what came afterwards with Dawn of the Dead. In fact, I think the editing style of Dawn of the Dead, the very rat-a-tat-tat rhythm, was very much developed in The Crazies. The film's editing styles are very similar. Romero at that point was editing his own films. He did that for Night of the Living Dead through Dawn of the Dead until Pascal Bobon took that over Night Riders from that point on. But The Crazies, which is about a plague that is not related to zombies, but which has even more frightening resonance these days with uh, what we're all going through with the COVID-19 pandemic, as does Dawn, frankly, in terms of society's and 
ability to react to the problem effectively. But the crazies was not a hit, and at that point, as Romero himself has stated, he was pretty much persona non grata in terms of the American film industry, even as a regional independent working out of Pittsburgh. He'd been forgotten, and the success of Night of Living Dead was kind of a distant memory for him at that point. So he left the feature film world for a while, met up with his eventual longtime producer, Richard Rubenstein, and directed nine sports documentaries for television in the years 1973 and 1974, which kind of helped him uh, pay the bills and keep a footing in the industry. And he was moving on. He was writing at that point both Martin and Dawn of the Dead. Martin eventually shot in the summer of 1976. But let's talk a little bit more specifically about how Dawn of the Dead came about. Romero got the idea in 1974 and 1975. He was friends with a guy named Mark Mason, who had a company named Oxford Development. Romero had tried to get financing for some of his films through Mason. That had never quite worked out, but he remained friends with Mason, and Mason took him on a tour of the Monroeville Mall, where the Book of Dawn of the Dead is shot. Romero at that point got the idea for the film. He has stated that the earliest version that he wrote is even grimmer and more apocalyptic than the version that we're looking at now. Essentially, it was it took place much further along in the zombie crisis, centered around two characters, presumably the ones that would become Fran and Stephen in the, the final version. A man and his pregnant companion who were living entirely in the crawl spaces above the stores in the mall, and he said that they had were naked all the time, and they had essentially regressed to an almost caveman-like behavior. And Romero himself has said that it went too far for multiple reasons. It went too far in terms of the um, grimness of the content, and he said that it also went too far, that he didn't want to go that far into where the zombie plague had really been taking place. I don't think there's a specific timeline mentioned. Night of the Living Dead obviously takes place the day that everything goes to hell. I believe I read that Dawn of the Dead is, I can't remember if it's one week or one month after things have begun. And then Day of the Dead is supposed to be, I believe, about six months after that. Now, Land of the Dead is a little bit after that point. Romero wrote the first half of the screenplay for Dawn of the Dead and then took a break and went to shoot Martin in the summer of 1976. Roy Frumkis, director of Document of the Dead. I was at the School of Visual Arts and I proposed a series of teaching films about independent filmmaking. So I was looking for a film to shoot on and then I hear that George is shooting Dawn and that Richard Rubenstein is producing. I was friends socially with Richard. So I called and I said, can I uh, come up there with a couple of teachers or students and, you know, do a making of? He said, yes, that's, you know, that's, that's interesting promotional value. I said, great. So I met George, maybe for the first time really, on the set. These are the opening moments of Martin, a film Romero made just before dawn. As the story unfolds, you'll see the screenplay qualities, all inherently cinematic, which begin to articulate his style. First, the visual imperative. With few exceptions, cinema relies as little as possible on the spoken word. Characterization and plot are best revealed through action and accumulation of detail. Montage concepts begin in the screenplay. The story is developing with literally no dialogue, and suspense is being generated not only in the horror of the situation, but in the mystery of the plot itself. We still don't know his identity, his motives, or his goal. Romero's use of dual linear movement fleshes out the two dimensions of film into three. A use of such devices as the manipulation of time,
other devices, such as irony. see from the final page of the Dawn screenplay, Romero's use of the form is unorthodox, in a medium where one page generally equals one minute of film. The script seems <clears throat> long. Did you plan to shoot it all? I mean, giving yourself leeway in the cutting? To... Pretty much, yeah. I usually write long scripts. Martin was a long script that was really a long script. I mean, mm -hmm. then the first cut came out at almost two hours and 45 minutes. Wow. This is a long script that seems long. <laughs> it's wow. not really long. There's so much description, and, and if you read those pages, there's so much action described in, in great paragraphs where I got carried away you know, describing the action itself. And some of those things take a second and a half, you know. Mm -hmm. It's not cutting that long. We did, I cut the first half of the film, and it came in at 45 minutes. So I, don't, I think the first cut will probably be about a two-hour cut, which is not bad for a first yeah. cut. It was John Amplis, actually, who was doing casting. Primarily, I think I start. I was asked to help with casting and did some casting work on it. I had a friendship already with David Emge, and I was able to get him involved and people like Randy Kovitz. You got any cigarettes? And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of zombies. <laughs> that was easy. That's a phone call. If you're smart on a movie, you shoot all your exteriors first, you know? So that's what happened. I don't remember where the tenement house was. It was nowhere near the mall. A small group of black and Puerto Rican youngsters scattered about the rooftop, almost as if in play. Suddenly, another SWAT patrol, their guns drawn, emerged from behind a large elevator housing. A blast of gunfire, and the retreating young civilians had to step over the bodies of their less lucky comrades, who were mowed down in their haste. Oh, here's your guys. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, do you remember how cold it was when we were doing oh, this? Oh, freezing. Absolutely freezing. freezing. This was one of the first things you yes, guys it was. shot. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah. yeah, most of this stuff was shot before we got there. Right. I mean, I mean, when I, I didn't do anything for a little while because you were all out that tenement somewhere. I hand wrote a resume, got a couple snapshots, and I went down, I met Clayton and Sharon there. So George looked, you know, he smiled. Nice guy that he is. He says, okay, I'll be in touch with you. I didn't hear anything for, I guess it was a good two months and I was like well I guess I'm out I got a call from Christine she said we need you down in Pittsburgh so I said all right mm. yeah that was very I'll never forget it was freezing yeah. cold yeah. and where was this physically uh, oh, somewhere, somewhere in Pittsburgh no where did you uh, shoot this stuff George we shot this in a in a project well it's at the right? roof shots right here these roof shots oh, are right. on the roof of our George's old building where he worked oh really Fort Pitt Boulevard Latent image yeah huh. My old company, The Latent Image. We were shooting in the projects, which I think was actually on top of the office building downtown. We went up to the roof and shot these things with Scotty, J Jimmy Bafico, Wooly. And John Amplis is about to make a uh, an appearance. A lot of people don't realize that, that yeah, I know. This, this is John. What's his name, Rodriguez or something? Or? Yeah. I don't know. If, does he have a name? Come on, Martinez. It was 20 below zero. And when I came in, George smiled and he said, give Joe Shelby the chrome-plated gun and set him up for the squibs. 
So I became Martinez. If I start all the action in the movie, I come out the rooftop and I shoot a SWAT guy between the eyes. Rod Tucker, I think his name was. The first headshot, the first right. clip. Was that your first headshot, Tom? In the, yeah, I think so. You mean on this, on this, on this picture? On that guy, on that, there's John Amplis. says Martin. <laughs> Uh-oh, Rod just got it in the head. And what oh, about the whole idea of tenements and the racial thing? You know, I mean, yeah. this oh, is yeah. a big deal. Yeah, yeah. I dove across the roof. I still got some asphalt in my elbows. <laughs> George said, do you mind getting squibbed? I said, no. Come over and give me a hug. I said, do you need anything else? He goes, yeah, you can be there every day if you want. Later on, I was assistant makeup to Tom Savini. Roger was thrown off balance, and he struggled to catch his wind as his weapon skittered across the roof. Roger dove for it, but before he reached it, he was cut off by the looming figure of one of the black youths. The kid brandished a pistol in his hand, and he looked like he knew how to use it. Roger froze like a deer before flight. The young man aimed his gun meticulously, as if in slow motion. Just as he was about to pull the trigger, a sudden barrage of bullets ripped through his back and he fell to the rooftop, a pool of blood forming beneath him. Come on, you dumb bastards, come and get him! Wooly cried out, totally unaware that he had just saved Roger's life. Roger shuddered with the thought that Wooly might have just as easily fired the gun at Roger's own darkened shadow. John Amplis. John Amplis. They needed somebody up on the roof, and so George said to Tom, just have John do it. I don't know, he, he plays a Puerto wait. Rican. Uh, yeah. right. There he is there right there is. with a the wig on. And, yeah. uh, I was put in uh, a bad wig, a bandana, bad mustache and goatee, and thrown up on the roof. Right. I yeah. tell people that Martin, they, 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 they watch the movie again just to see Martin right. as, the, as a Puerto Rican, as Amplis, you know. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah. Oh, Amplis playing. <laughs> yeah, that's, big, that's the filthy Apache. pigs. The, the filthy pigs. <laughs> it looks like a, an outcast of a Ford Apache hood. He's, uh, he's, oh. he's the star of Martin, which is another George Romero movie. Yes, yes, yes. One of George's favorite, from what I understand. It Amplis. still is. A run, run, run. Oh, hey, what's happening? <laughs> okay. Don't go out there! Don't, Don't go, go out, out there! there. We oh, know the he's line. dead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, I apologize to every single Latino or, or Hispanic that uh, uh, sees me in that movie. <laughs> Roger charges for his weapon, snatches it up, and runs for the cover of an incinerator housing. He startles a young civilian who is hiding there, trying to load his gun. The boy makes a break. Roger. Hold it! The boy freezes for a moment. Then, Dinky breaks into a run across the room. Roger. Don't go out there! The boys mowed down in a crossfire. Roger fell against the wall of the incinerator housing in a heap. Somehow, this was worse than Nam. This was his hometown, his country. And they weren't fighting against funny-looking slant eyes, but against their own citizens. Nothing in his marine training had prepared him for this. Jesus, he thought. I'm acting like a real fucking sissy. Must be thinking too much. He strapped his rifle on his back and filed down the stairway and inside the building with a handful of survivors. Inside the building, other SWAT teams, along with units of the National Guard, are crashing through hallways and breaking into apartment units. People are herded into the halls where they are held at gunpoint. Some men, although armed, surrender willingly. Others retaliate against the invading force, and little skirmishes develop on every floor of the complex structure. On the ground, the commander barks into the bullhorn. Commander. Mass. Sergeant. Into walkie-talkie. Last, you're dead. Last, you're dead. 
Tear gas canisters crash through windows and the halls are filled with clouds of gas. Civilians trying to escape are choked as they attempt to shoot their way out. Oh yeah, a mask for gas. The teams on the roof charge down the fire stairs into the building. SWAT 1. Work yourself down. Floor at a time. Come on, work yourself down. Floor at a time. Keep down. Roger and Wooly and the men in their unit snap on their bizarre-looking gas masks. The troopers break into an apartment on the floor. An old couple kneels in prayer at a small altar, while their children and their children's children huddle in a corner. The young husband surrenders his gun to a trooper, and Roger watches as the group is led into the hallway. Suddenly, a young black man charges out of one of the apartments. A woman appears at the door, screaming for him to stop. He breaks through a cloud of gas and Wooly fires his automatic. The black man crashes to the floor. Come on, you little bastards! So once that was over, then we all moved into the mall and shot all that stuff. Previous material was exerted from the 1977 working draft of the motion picture Dawn of the Dead by George A. Romero, sound clips from the film itself, and elements from the novelization by Susanna Sparrow, as read by Jonathan Davis for the audiobook. This minute is more or less consistent across all edits of the film with slight variations. The con cut extends a couple seconds into minute 9, while the Argento cut maintains its early length lead, spanning 8.30 to about 9.40. There's an additional shot in one of the tenement apartments of some soldiers gently guiding residents. This barely offsets the much more aggressive Goblin repeated snippet from the track Zombie, which drowns out most of the lines and sound effects, alongside the militant violence being inflicted within the setting. The U.S. theatrical cut is a slimmer 5 sixths of a minute, spanning about 7.19 through 8.09, with some overdubs dropped. Both of Romero's edits reduce the presence of the DeWolf Library's score in favor of dialogue and atmosphere. The track has dramatic moments number one, from the London Studio Orchestra's 1965 library LP titled Power Project. It was composed by Derek Lauren and runs just 1 minute 30 seconds. Online resources erroneously credit the track to Eric Towerin, but corrections can be found on the LP sleeve available on Discogs, as well as the track listing for Dawn of the Dead, a DeWolf Library compilation, packaged with Second Sight Films limited edition re-release in 2021. I haven't been able to identify any of the extras in this minute. Reach out if you can help. Sorry for the extended outsourced opening, but I wanted to play catch up with materials not available before the show went on its extended hiatus for most of last year. There was also material from the novelization substantially altered in the movie that I wanted to address. At Dawn of the Dead, I uh, had about uh, 20 seconds on screen at the very top. I think I'm the first one to get killed uh, in the role of Martinez. Getting back to the very modest Martinez debate, the character portrayed by John Amplis is clearly a composite of two separate roles in the screenplay and book. It takes the place of both the homicidal African-American gunman killed by Woolsey and the younger boy who was cut down while fleeing from Roger. Just as Joe Shelby states in the Bikers and Zombies documentary, he's playing a single character clearly identified as a member of the Tenement Resisters who draws first blood in the police standoff. Amplis is just a stand-in for various ethnic characters while donning embarrassing brownface. John Amplis is the casting director on Dawn, but wore many hats on the production, probably literally. I know he's one of the motorcycle raiders, if I recall correctly the one Peter throws off the balcony, and he likely turns up unheralded in a bunch of other places. Still, this is a spotlight moment in the picture, and given how much we've already referenced Martin, now seems the best time to explore the actor in detail. As mentioned in the previous episode, John Amplis is currently miscredited on IMDb as Lieutenant Leader Martinez, despite previously being credited as second guy on roof, and by my estimation actually played a character named Rico. He is not listed in the film's credits, but this was his second speaking role after being introduced as the lead in George A. Romero's Martin. My name is Martin. I'm 84 years old. People think I'm crazy when I tell them how old I am. I'd like to be normal. 
I just have a sickness. The only way I can survive is by drinking blood. It's not easy living the way I do. I have to be careful all the time. But I'm pretty good at it. I think as I get older, I get better. I haven't been caught yet. Martin, another kind of terror. You see, people don't understand what's wrong. They think that I'm a monster. They think I'm a vampire. Those things I see in the movies are not real. I don't have a whole lot of women. It's nice to watch them. I watch them a lot, all the time. I have to, to be sure that nothing goes wrong. I follow them. I plan. I'm very careful. I have needles now. I can use them. I can put them to sleep. And it doesn't hurt. <laughs> Another kind of terror. I would like to be like everyone else. I have to do things that I don't necessarily like to do. But I want to stay alive. I do need blood. From the director of Night of the Living Dead. Martyr. Prior to putting together this recording, I'd never seen Martin. My familiarity with the film came from Document of the Dead, which evolved over several decades from a sort of school project to a commercial documentary release to something of a life's work. I'm not certain when I first saw it, but certainly no later than the version packaged with Anchor Bay's 2004 release of the Ultimate Edition DVD set. It's also on the recent Second Sight Blu-ray special features disc, but I didn't bother to check which version because I already own the definitive edition as a separate release. We'll get into that much later, since most of Roy Frumke's actual presence within Dawn of the Dead is centered on the final encounter with motorcycle raiders toward the end of the film. The original 1980 or 81 version of Document of the Dead was intended as an instructional tool for independent filmmakers, and since Frumkiss had access to both Richard Rubenstein and George Romero, he was also allowed to employ both films the pair had made together by that point. The documentary assumes a basic understanding of formal filmmaking technique, and so goes a lot deeper into theory and technical jargon than the average viewer could follow. I certainly found it interesting, but I'm not enough of a cinephile to fully appreciate it all myself. I was amused to learn that narration was provided by the counterculture figure Susan Tyrell, who I knew best from the 1984 exploitation thriller Angel, which you may remember from the tagline, High School Honor Student by Day, Hollywood Hooker by Night. Here in a later scene from Martin, Romero's modern vampire story, one can feel a tight pre-structured quality indicative of storyboarding. I had a copy of the script about uh, a month and a half or two before we started shooting, and he already had it storyboarded to an extent.
There's a lot of quick cuts of you creeping down hallways. And how would you hit your mark emotionally? I generally didn't worry too much about it emotionally. I was more interested in hitting the mark and being in the right place. Okay. Who are you? Well. Oh my God. Oh. Let, let's not get a call. Uh, excited about this now. That's no reason to get upset now. Anything, okay? I don't know him. Were the scenes very tightly blocked off? They weren't tightly blocked, but they were blocked uh, because of it. Because of being such an action, an action scene, you know, we had written blocking just as if we would work in in a, a theater. Of course, Martin was a small shoot. Generally, not more than eight people on the set in total. Dawn had, I think, 35 in staff and uh, hundreds in actors. Yeah, many nights, hundreds. His attention was being pulled away all too right. often, so he kept himself pretty much by himself during that. But his overall attitude with actors was pretty much the same. Now your role in Dawn was on the other side of the camera. I was casting director. Mostly my job was recruiting zombies. zombies. Creative compromise is the name of the game in filmmaking. Logistics of production force one to make decisions counter to the original concept, but ultimately beneficial. Well, we were talking before about the fact that when he got to the mall, he, it had a different atmosphere than he already uh, thought about yeah. Don having. The mall also brought a futuristic look to the mm. film. It was so vast. This has been transposed into his feature editing, so that there is very rarely a let up in the action. I don't think there are very many shots that last four or five seconds on screen. Uh, there are not those long, long camera moves revolving around. Uh, all George would do would cut them up if Mike did them. I shoot a lot, and um, because uh, I know that I can make the decisions later on the cutting table. And uh, so I wind up shooting a lot of material that I fall in love with and I really like, and there's just uh, economically no room for it in the final piece. So it's, it's harder, and it's very hard to be. When I sit down and I say, okay, now here are ten scenes that I like, which two are the least needed? It's really, that's a very difficult process for me. And I think that's where all your bias comes in and all your emotions. It's very difficult. It's a lot easier to edit when you're uh, up front, when you're writing. You know, there's a lot of people that work with really a formula in terms of when to use the master, when to go in and all that. Uh, and, that and people will say that it's very shattering if you don't follow some kind of a pattern or if, you, or if there isn't some kind of an expected uh, cutting pace that people can relax and get comfortable with. I don't think that's true at all. I don't think people notice cuts, uh, or if they're well done, if they're not shattering or jarring, you don't notice them at all. And there's a sequence in Martin, for example, which could have been just the murder sequence, but it's elongated as far as I thought it could be elongated. The emergency, now call 911. I can't call 911, that's the police. I'm it's not the police, it's just a general emergency number. And that some of the actions are very mundane, dealing with the telephone. Yeah. Well, call the hospital. Tell them what happened, right? Now tell them we're coming. We'll be there in five minutes. But all of those actions, no matter how mundane, become interesting when you look at them in a certain way. Mercy, is Mercy around here? Mercy, okay, okay, I don't know the number. All information. Get the number. Call. They're all part of the overall action that's going on, and they all help to build a certain amount of suspense Thank because they're things that we deal with every day. Shit! It's fucked up. Wait a minute. I gotta do it again. I don't like sloughing sequences off, you know, I don't like car chases that don't do anything, yeah, yeah. you know, 
because within, uh, you know, a little uh, a fight in this room that encompasses like three punches being thrown. I'm not talking about a big brawl. I could, you know, you could you could do a three punch fight and make it last five minutes. Yeah. You know, <laughs> because everything's valid and everything is information, and I like to deal with detail. And I'd like to just go with a visual, you know, almost a kind of a cubist look at that. And that's another place where I'll just shoot a lot of film. I use a lot of sound elements and I, I cut rather than on a flatbed on a table with a synchronizer and there's a certain kind of tactile thing that I get into in terms of the tracks it's a visual almost checkerboarding of the tracks and I, I don't use film as leader I always use white because I, I like to see that white brown juxtaposition of the tracks and I like to lay the tracks across on a table and you can almost visualize them how the track is working. And I use a lot of track, and I cut, when I do my first cut, I don't just cut picture voice. I cut with uh, some kind of music and with effects. And, uh, rather so you than, use pre-recorded music like to get the yeah, inherent rhythm? To get to get some kind of rhythm going, until I find a rhythm going. And then I, I wind up with a lot of tracks. I mean, for a small independent stuff. I mean, I've seen studio productions where they get into you know, 30, 40 tracks, yeah. but that's just because they're too lazy to yeah, <laughs> lay them yeah. in sometimes. But I use up to, I use 12 to 15 tracks. And I like a lot of sound. I just, I hate dead, uh, dead air. I'm, mm. I'll always use some kind of an ambience or uh, and a lot of music, um, which is just all form stuff. Some people say that the, my tracks are too driving or too full, but um, that's just uh, personal preference. Given Richard Rubenstein's involvement, you might wonder whether the home media and streaming rights from Martin are being held up by exorbitant rate demands, and you would be correct. Curiously, Martin can be found in a very high-quality presentation, uncensored and without an age gate, on YouTube. The film opens with the titular character riding an interstate train overnight. He breaks into a woman's private sleeper car, and after a struggle, injects her with a sedative. <laughs> It's all right. I'm all 
always very careful with the needles. It won't hurt you. Oh, it's not It won't hurt you. What's in that shot? It's just to help you Tell sleep. Tell me what was in the it's shot. Why do you want me to sleep? sleep? Why don't you just take it's what you important. want and go? Don't you understand? I it's important to me. It's important. I'm always very careful with the needles. So it puts you to sleep. And it doesn't hurt. Once she finally passes out, Martin strips her nude, then undresses himself. Sex is inferred, and then Martin slits her wrists down the road with a simple razor blade, bathing and drinking her blood in a quasi-money shot. He leaves her dead, wiping away evidence of the murder, and planting elements framing it as a suicide. The actress's name, by the way, is Francine Middleton. Arriving in Pittsburgh from Indianapolis, Martin is met by an elderly man introduced as his cousin, Kuda. The pair take another train to Braddock, Pennsylvania, where Martin is to live with Kuda and his granddaughter. Kuda is from the old country and lays down the law in Old Testament terms. Vampire. First, I will save your soul. Then, I will destroy you. You may come and go, but you will not take people from the city. If I hear of it a single time, I will destroy you without salvation. You may not enter my room. When I wish to speak with you, I will. My granddaughter stays with me. You will not enter her room. I have told her not to speak with you, but she will. You will not answer. Tomorrow you may rest. Next day you work in my shop. I've been told uh, you are imbecile. Can you speak? Speak so I can hear your voice. Speak, Nosferatu. I am your cousin. I am your cousin, Martin. You see? You see? You see? You see? It isn't magic. Even I know that. It isn't magic. This exchange prompts the first of several confrontations between Martin and Kuda. Martin insists that there is no magic and that none of the conventional deterrence against vampires will work on him. Despite a mild light aversion, Martin walks around in broad daylight, can bite into garlic, sees himself in mirrors, and caresses his face with a crucifix. His reedy, brittle voice anticipates Evil Ed and Fright Night. Martin soon meets and befriends Christina, who if you're familiar with Romero's typical naming conventions, you'll be unsurprised to learn is played by his future wife, Christine Forrest. She's aware of the nine vampires in her family history, three still living, but is as ashamed of her grandfather's outdated superstition as Kuda is disdainful of being responsible for Martin. Christina's boyfriend, Arthur, envies Martin's old stomping grounds of Indianapolis, where a man can still get a decent job. He's played by a young and clean-shaven Tom Savini, who of course does double duty on the special effects. The juxtaposition of mundane household drama and spree killing so strongly resembles the superior Henry portrait of a serial killer that I have to assume either a direct or shared influence. Martin answers the question of what if Beck had done a vanity art house picture for Andy Warhol right after Mellow Gold hit. As a rapist, murderer, and essentially a necrophiliac, 
The lead character is never really in danger of engendering audience sympathy. Just for good measure, though, he's played as an awkward creep and a perpetual predator. The shot framing is much more deliberate and artful here than most of Romero's features. It still has his naturalism, but the lackadaisical pace and black and white segments give it a dreamlike quality. The film is cagey about whether these segments are legitimate flashbacks of a supernormal being or the delusions of a very troubled young man. I favor the vampire angle, but the film allows you to take it either way. Like Night of the Living Dead, it's a very postmodern, God is dead deconstruction of myth in the age of science. I miss this sort of dogged rationality and mainstream thought. That said, I prefer the irreverent vampire horror comedies of the 1980s or the lord romanticism of the Anne Rice route. There are essential qualities to the picture, mostly down to Amplis's youth and lean frame. There is female nudity as well, but thanks to its presentation, it would only appeal to people who favor the most troubling tags on porn sites. Recently, a long-thought lost three-hour cut of Martin was unearthed, but I don't feel it quite fills up the 95 minutes of the theatrical release. It picks up as it goes along, and the ending is jarringly abrupt, but I still struggle to pay attention for half the running time in the absence of any truly sympathetic characters. I think there's some really strong, really striking sequences in the movie, and maybe with additional material to supplement some of the stuff that I didn't think was as strong, there would be a picture that I'd be more available to. But honestly, for me, I feel like I already saw most of the best stuff in the movie as part of the editorializing of the picture in Document of the Dead. I think it's a well-made picture, and I would recommend it to a more receptive audience than myself. My name's John Amplis. I'm an associate professor with the theater program. I had an uncle who was involved in community theater in Pittsburgh, my Uncle Jack. When I was about 10, he took me and my cousin to an audition for a play called Dark at the Top of the Stairs. Back in the 1960, maybe? We auditioned, and I got the role of the young boy in the play, 10 years old. And so that's kind of how it started. And I did a lot of community theater when he was involved in it. I kind of fell away from it in uh, high school yeah. for a bit, although I did attend the Playhouse School, 63 to 66, but I played a lot of hooky. You know, after high school, I went to the Army. Didn't look like I was headed towards college. I didn't have that kind of background. I didn't yeah. have the grades for it. I was in Vietnam. All of 70, I went in January of 70, came back just before 71. I got this kind of job, that kind of job. I was always looking for something I thought would be easy. <laughs> so I did this little play, and then I got out of the Army. I didn't. I still was kind of directionless. And then suddenly, for some reason, Point Park had... You in 68, developed a four-year program. Can go to school on the GI Bill in 1972. I really liked it. I mean, I loved it. I didn't grow up with a close-knit family, you know. Yeah. Uh, my sisters and I were kind of separated very young in our lives, and we didn't get back to really know each other until after I got out of the Army. What I found in the theater was family, was a home, a community. I think that's part and parcel of what theater does for us. I didn't know anything about George Romero except the Night of the Living Dead movie. <clears throat> because it was shot here, and it was shot eight years prior to me getting involved with George. I had no real connection to George at all. He came to see me in a play that I did in my senior year of college. Now, I was a little older than most of my classmates because I had been in the Army first. Well, I was 27, and he saw me in this little play, talked to me afterwards, I think it was. He had a screenplay he'd been working on. He had an older character in mind, and he wanted to rethink it. And so he went away and rethunk it. 
and brought it back and and asked me if I wanted to do the role of Mark. It turned out to be George's favorite movie and mine too, for obvious reasons. <laughs> His crew was amazing. I mean, Mike Bornick was with him since Martin. He started doing yeah. cinematography. In fact, George was set up to both direct and shoot Martin. First day of work, he had the camera set up and ready to go. We were walking along. I was walking along the train tracks. Turned to Mike and said, do you want to shoot this? And yeah. Mike said, yeah. <laughs> and so Mike was the cinematographer from that point on. It was the first time George felt like he was a director. He said later that uh, that was the best decision he made. All of the interiors were shot in, in Tony's parents' and grandparents' house. His brother Pasquale, Pat, who just recently passed away, helped a lot with editing. And Pat went on to Hollywood and did some really big-name films. Working on a set with George is like working with a family, you know. Everybody gets along, everybody pitches in, everybody gets their hands dirty. It's really due to the fact the way George is, you know, he has an even temperament and easy to get along with and humor. He makes it very comfortable for actors and crew alike. Following Martin, Apples had a minor role in the 1980 micro-budget supposed thriller Toxic Zombies. The film opens with federal agents executing a pair of illicit marijuana farmers out in the woods. They are in turn murdered by another pair of disgruntled ex-hippie drug dealers looking for revenge. With the agents having gone missing, a higher-placed member of the same federal agency escalates the pursuit as he describes to his subordinate played by Amplis. In consideration of the hour, I'll get right to the point. I just learned that two of our field men in Operation Torpedo have disappeared. They were given a 60-mile search area two days ago and haven't been heard from since. Maybe they're lost. Not likely. Those men are all experts. They were probably ambushed. They must have found the dope growers. Exactly. That's why we have to move fast before they harvest their crop and disappear. You, uh, you're aware of this new herbicide called Dromax? Sure. It's the strongest stuff they've found yet. But I understand they're a little worried about the side effects. The research says it might be dangerous. They haven't finished testing it yet. Anyhow, that stuff is off limits to this kind of operation. It would take two weeks to get clearance for the usual herbicides. That crop could be in California by then. There's a half a ton of Dromax sitting in a warehouse in Knoxville. The Bureau chief there owes me a favor. I could arrange a small shipment to a local crop duster with a couple of phone calls. I don't know. It sounds risky. Take a look at this map. That's the area right there. We cleared it 30 years ago for a dam that never got built. Only a few very poor roads. Completely inaccessible six months of the year. There's nobody there to breathe the powder. What about our field man in this area? Doesn't he tour this region? Four times a year. We can make sure he keeps his nose out of there till we finish. What about the dope growers themselves? You're talking about the people who probably murdered two federal officers. Anyway, I, I believe that growing marijuana on federal property is still a crime in this country. Now, how upset would you really be if a few of those people became ill? Hmm? Remember, we don't know that Dromax is toxic to humans. You know? I bet headquarters would love it if we could catch up with these guys. Now you're talking.
IMDb credits Ampliz's character as Phillips, but I never caught a name during my admittedly very passive and rather distracted, quote, viewing of the, quote, film. Let's jump ahead about an hour and let the characters fill us in on what's happened. The scene opens with the corrupt bureau agents on the road to investigate the disappearance of a third agent after their unauthorized chemical strike. Should be about three miles up this road. Are you sure you're going to recognize him when we find him? Relax. I've got his license number. I've seen his picture. There's no way to screw this up. Hey, <laughs> you should be excited about this opportunity to score points with the new director of operations. You know, it isn't everybody gets a chance like this. I'll do my part. You make sure of your end after we get back to Washington. There's a smart boy. Who the hell are all those people? I think that's Cole. I thought you said he'd be alone. Take it easy. Relax. Nothing has changed. We'll just have to play it by ear a little. You do the talking. You might remember my voice. And Phillips, stay calm. Am I glad to see you? Can you give us a lift into town? Uh, sure. Hop we in. have to call the police right away. You wouldn't believe what's been happening up here. Well, there have been at least four murders since yesterday. Slow down, pal. You and your friends hop in the back. Everything's gonna be all right now. I don't know who they are, but I think they've been growing marijuana in the mountains just west of here. They may have been affected by some chemical that was dropped in their crop. It's all so fantastic, especially since the department that I work for is responsible for domestic drug control. Look, there's the turnoff to the cabin. Yeah, I'm glad you guys have that rifle back there. I think we're safe on this road. They're probably hiding back up there in the woods. Not down there. Oh. What the hell what are, you are you doing? doing? I told you those guys are hiding back up this road. Just relax. We're going to take a look for ourselves. But I told you they're savages. You're risking all of our lives by going back up there. I said relax, Mr. Cole. The crop duster pilot had been turned into a zombie through exposure and murdered his wife. The affected weed farmers had gone on a killing spree, including the parents of the girl and her special needs brother. They were befriended by Tom and Polly Cole, with the group seeking overnight shelter in the remote home of an anti-government paranoiac living off the grid. He had previously been bribed by the drug dealers to look the other way. And when they returned as cannibal zombies, the paranoid redneck tries to sell out the survivors. They turned the tables and left him for dead escaping into the dawn, when they were picked up and soon kidnapped by the corrupt feds. Seeking to kill everyone and destroy all evidence of their misdeeds, the feds take the survivors back to the area dusted with Dromax. Amplis's character is brained by a rock and eaten by a zombie, giving the one heroic fed, Tom Cole, a chance to save the other survivors. His wife Polly sacrificed herself to rescue the girl, who helps Tom kill the last of the evil feds and the last of the zombies. The film ends with a flash forward, as Tom quits the agency disgust at their incompetence and malfeasance. They don't make them like this anymore, by which I mean they can't blow most of the paltry budget on a lurid painted poster that completely misrepresents the second bill of a drive-in double feature. Its greatest accomplishment was getting run on Commander USA's groovy movies, a largely forgotten basic cable horror host with an uncanny resemblance to the comedian from Watchmen, who he predated by almost two years. The comedian Gilbert Gottfried passed recently, and there were a lot of fond memories expressed of his time shared with Rhonda Shear as alternating host of the USA Network's Saturday Night Schlock Showcase, Up All Night. Commander USA predated that, in a time when their late-night programming was buoyed by commercials for an Albie paid hotline. Get your parents' permission before calling. You can watch the specific screening for free on YouTube, but you should not, because it is without any merit beyond the period commercial breaks. In 1981, Amplis returned to the Romero fold as Whiteface in Knight Riders. We, at that time, in the late 70s and 80s, 
We were like a repertory company. The same people coming back, playing different roles, and we were all happy to do it. I mean, Night Riders for me was like summer camp. Ten weeks of play paid for. <laughs> then animated Nathan's corpse in the Father's Day segment of Creep Show the following year. The makeup itself wasn't bad. I had to spend a week with Savini putting plaster over my arms and hands and legs and head and all of that in order to create a costume, an emaciated body and head for the creature. That took about a week, and then I came back and shot another week. Also in 1982, Amplis appeared in John A. Russo's Midnight. The synopsis reads, A young woman, fleeing her sexually abusive stepfather, hitches a ride with two young men, but the three soon find themselves at the mercy of a backwoods satanic cult. Tom is 19, Nancy 17, and Hank 21. They had a good time for a while, but now they're missing. It all started as innocent fun. The van, the drinking, the turn-ons, until they cross the county line. They cross the line into a lonely community where anything can happen, where anyone can disappear without a trace. And now, from the pages of John Russo's best-selling novel, the story becomes a motion picture, Midnight. I thought I saw a shoe sticking out from under that blanket. Nah, he was just a big farmer with a bundle. Your mind's playing tricks on you, girl. You're all shook up. As soon as we find a good campsite, we'll smoke some of this good hash and loosen you up. Hold it there, fellas. Don't you make any foolish moves. Keep your hands visible. You reach for anything inside that bag, and I won't wait to see what you're reaching for. I'll just shoot. Maybe we'll uh, drag them out in the woods one at a time. Question them separately. Good idea. She might be right in front of you. There's been a half a dozen people found dead around here just in the past couple of years since I came here to preach. Some look like accidents, some obviously murdered. It's all right, Take right. your boy along. Get the road. Watch it. I'm looking on you, black woman. Which one of you owns this van? I do. Okay, take your six pack, get in the van, get out of town, now. You heard the man. Come move on, it. let's go. Let's go. go. We don't need your kind around here. Hank, move your white trash. Let's go. They should have known better when they came into town. Every sign pointed to what could happen there. Every indication told them to leave, now. The wise guys in the bar, the preacher's warning, and the sheriff who made hate a way of life. Go, get out of town. We don't want your kind here. But they stayed. They stayed, and it became too late to leave. Too late, as the clock approached 
Midnight. Midnight. Now the book from the co-author of Night of the Living Dead comes to life on the screen. Don't miss John Russo's Midnight. I can only find the trailer online, but Amplis appears to once again portray a murderous authority figure, or at least a killer dressed like a cop. And yes, that was Reservoir Dogs' Lawrence Tierney as the stepfather. Master of the house, <laughs> turn on the ready with a handshake and an open hand. It was in 82 yeah. that I was asked if I wanted to teach part-time. Point Barton? Yeah. yeah. Here. I said, uh, okay, while I'm here, I should try that. Well, I've been doing it ever since. I am uh, an associate professor with Point Park University. We own and operate the Pittsburgh Playhouse, which is a training program for our conservatory company for theater, dance, and film and cinematography. I'm also the associate artistic director of the Playhouse Rep, our professor professional company, and I direct. In fact, I do a lot more directing these days than acting. Amplis returned to the screen for Romero in 1985's Day of the Dead, playing Ted Fisher, one of the researchers caught between the mad scientist Logan and Rhodes' increasingly unstable military thugs. After Martin, it is likely his best-remembered role. What's he trying to prove? I saw one of those things sitting in a car in D.C. trying to drive down Independence Avenue. It didn't make me want to be its friend. It's amazing. It's not what this one does, but what he doesn't do. What do you mean? He doesn't get excited. He doesn't get agitated when Logan walks in the room. He doesn't see Logan as... Lunch. Dinner. Breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Having fun? Following along absence, Amplis joined in on another Romero adaptation of Stephen King as Thad Beaumont in 1993's The Dark Half. Into the last one he did here in Pittsburgh, which was Timothy Hutton was in it, The Dark Cow. Yeah, I played uh, Hutton's double in it, actually kind of like his off-camera acting partner because he had to play twins. I mean, I'm never on screen, sure. but I was his acting partner when he had to talk to himself. And so when he was on screen as one twin, you know, we did that. And I worked with him a little bit, working on lines and stuff like that. I kind of liked him. He was a good guy. I don't know how this double thing happened because he's like 6'3", and I'm 5'9". <laughs> and I wasn't on set a whole hell of a lot. I never pay attention to the politics or the uh, goings on for the most part, at least not day to day. The following year, Amber starred as Eddie Buford in Tony Buba's No Pets. Buba was himself the sombrero-clad motorcycle raider in Dawn of the Dead, but went on to become a well-regarded regional documentarian. No Pets is described as an honest exploration of one Pennsylvania factory worker's mundane existence and his pursuit of a love long lost. It appears to be Buba's only work directing a piece of fiction. Amplis took another lengthy absence before appearing in the Scott Bayo film The Bread My Sweet, also known as A Wedding for Bella. Nick Tallow, one of the motorcycle raiders, also appears in the feature. Given my feelings about Chachi's odious politics, I think I'll wait for Tallow's appearance much, much later in Dawn of the Dead to watch this one. Well, I'm very liberal. As an actor, not so much am I concerned with the social commentary as I am with the story, but the social commentary is in the story. You know, it's in the writing. It's in the directing. That's where it becomes apparent to people that watch his films. And I'm 
sure he always has a point of view that he's attempting to get across. The following year, Annapolis appeared in the 2002 feature Daddy Cool, which doesn't appear to be available for streaming. Not that many of these are. It's described as an homage to 50s horror films about a woman who sees visions in her television and her therapist who happens to be a werewolf. I don't follow horror films. I, I honestly don't. In spite of the fact that I've worked in four, five, six of them, it's not normally the uh, kind of viewing I do. I didn't hang into the film work so much. And, you know, I grew up on stage. That's where I spent most of my life in the theater. I never got to meet any of these hip, groovy directors. It'd be another 11 years until Amplis' next two screen credits, the 26-minute short Meet Your Maker and the horror mockumentary Mortal Remains. I have to ask you one more thing. Have you ever heard of a guy named Carl Atticus, a filmmaker? <laughs> Carl Atticus. Oh, boy. You mentioned this guy's name and bad stuff starts happening. That means a death sentence for anyone in the film industry. This guy was, like, using dead bodies in his movies. He's like, yeah, it was actually worse than that. There was something more going on. Too many people disappeared. A lot of strange things happened. There was really something going on with this guy and his films. was kind of regarded, I guess, as one of the uh, one of the pioneers, maybe, of splatter films. Mortal Remains is extremely graphic. With elements of torture, ritual sacrifice, murder, grave robbing, even cannibalism. Never seen anything so realistic. Right after Blair Witch, people were sending me all kinds of things. Somebody sent me 30 seconds of Mortal Remains. never seen. I mean, that was it. It was never shown all the way through. The film was shown. The film was shown, but it was shown one time. If anybody would be able to locate a print of that film, <laughs> that would just be a total gold mine. Are we breaking into a house for real? Are we can uncover something. I don't want to We're on the verge of finding something. Did somebody follow us? I seriously think this is it. Whatever happened to Carl? I mean, it took a shotgun blew his head off. Yeah, I read that he killed himself. I mean, we would put it past in the stages of death. Knowing Carl, you know, anything's possible. What if he is still out there? Where the hell are you? No, because nobody knows about Carl Atticus. was played Master of Ceremonies in 2014's Progression, and then came Potent Media. Per their Facebook page, Potent Media is based in the Philadelphia and Bucks County areas of Pennsylvania, making films, music videos, and offering media services since 2007. Their last social media post was over two years ago, and their mix of CD-ROM era CGI and shooting locations ranging from wooded areas to trailer homes strongly recalls early aught skin flicks like Playmate of the Apes. However, 2016's Sugar Skull Girls appears to be a dinosaur stab at a Disney teen feature. Please, please, come in. We must hurry. We haven't got much time.
Apple's plays a distraught grandfather with an inexplicable Eastern European accent who solicits a medium to reach out to his deceased granddaughter. The medium, played by Police Academy's Leslie Easterbrook. In America, talk is cheap. I love America is casting spells at the ceremony when her little person assistant accidentally knocks a bunch of voodoo dolls into a cauldron. This produces a trio of living dead goth brats dolls who befriend a local teenager to help them battle an evil witch for the granddaughter's soul. When he bleeds, all the kitties. I am going to the store. Privacy. I am sorry. <laughs> I am not used to having young ladies in the house again. I am going to the store. Can I get you anything? Hey, dude, could you get me some chips? Of course, sweetie. Oh, and get me some of this delicious Hank soda. He's got Paul Spencer then. Yes, sweetie. Hey, Dee, can you get me some lip gloss? Yes, darling. Thanks, Dee. What? Is there anything you want? Yeah, we're out of double bubble. Okay, I will be right back. Oh wait, can you get me a teeth whitener? Now, I'm angry. Girls, you scared the bejesus out of me. I told you if you want to make a scarecrow for Halloween, to make it next to the house. Sorry, Dee. I'm so sorry, Demetrius. We couldn't save Anna. What are you guys talking about? Anna's right here. <laughs> what did you think we were doing in there? Our hair? This feature is also available free with commercials on YouTube and is at least a step up from Toxic Zombies, maybe even two steps. Amplis has been featured in 2018's After Hours Trading, 2020's Catch of the Day 2, You Die at Dawn, and 2021's The Exchange, which isn't even the most famous movie called The Exchange from the year 2021. 
What I could find of these movies online wasn't worth sharing. He has other projects forthcoming in various stages of production. I don't know what you mean by the method. I don't know what that is. That's all kind of hype, the way people think this method thing is. It's not a thing. It's not. <laughs> uh, how did I prepare? Here's the way an actor should prepare. Read the script, understand it as best you can, and then start the process of working. It's really that simple. Welcome at Klinika Krovček. Hi. We always help to make the world more beautiful. Alison Jacobs? Is it prohibited to drink coffee in a bar? He's professional. He's an rustic. What the fuck was that? Dr. Krovček is a very brilliant surgeon. You're in the best place, in perfect hands. Wait, stop. Stop immediately. We heal mama this This episode's running longer than I'd like, so I'm going to just go quickly into the bonus review of a zombie movie. Yummy is okay. That's it. That's the review. No? You want more? Fine. Yummy is a 2019 Belgian production shot mostly in English, apparently the country's first zombie movie. It's set in a hospital that offers free abortions and ample plastic surgery opportunities because of a lucrative side hustle in unethical experimentation for I think the government or the Dutch Illuminati or something. Our protagonists are a routinely harassed woman seeking a breast reduction and a nerdy partner who flunked out of med school in the first year owing to a strong aversion to blood. The hospital is curiously flush with unseemly types like a tarted up administrator, and a platinum blonde rapey junkie concierge, I guess. Either hospitals work very differently in Belgium, or nobody involved in this production ever set foot in one that was still in operation. Since Benny Hill was an executive producer on this thing, a topless dead girl in frilly panties starts the ball rolling. Every female lead disrobes to some degree at some point, and easily the best bit in the film was a scene with an extended dick joke, a double entendre, rest assured. Yummy is a zomcom where most of the comedy doesn't land but short circuits your ability to take the reasonably gory zombieing seriously. As a zombie movie connoisseur, I can tell what kind I'm watching and how much I'm likely to enjoy it within a few scenes based on whether the screenwriters demonstrate affection for their characters. If they demonstrate a lack of authorial empathy, it's either going to go for black comedy or just plain suck. The writers seem to hold their subjects to some degree of contempt, but it isn't terrible. You simply know where this is all going to end up by virtue of the ironic, and in this case, European detachment. 
It's a slasher by bites, with one sordid or superficial character after another getting their undead comeuppance. The production is fine for what it is, a mildly amusing but inessential pastime. You probably won't be mad at it, and there are way worse films that you can watch in its stead, but you could also die happy having missed it entirely. Either way, it's fine. You'll be fine. Have a fine day. Ready, get the new list of rescue stations. Charlie's receiving on the emergency. Rescue stations. 20th Century Geek Podcast, Ann Labs, Canoes, who added Keep Up the Good Work, Rolled Spine, Chris Dunford, Chris Lydon, Chris Thompson, CJ, Doc Strange, Dr. G Nerdologist, Dirk Ashton, who added Thanks RSP, El Romero Romero, Eric Borden, History of Comics on Film, I was Joe Crawford, Jeffrey Brown, They, Them, Just in Time with the JT Baggers, Keith G. Baker, Keith Say, King Dinosaur, Melissa Rayan Sorrell, Mike at Rihanna Mike, Mike at St. Aliens to Me, Randy Caldwell, Richard Van Ingram, Shanna Banana, Sean McLaughlin, Talk Nerdy to Me, and Tim Mason. CJ writes, I'm always impressed about how you can get so much out of one minute of content. More of this, please. Keith say, My sister saw Dawn at the cinema when it first came out. It totally traumatized her. Chris Dunford noted, My zombies. Slow. With some deeply ingrained memories. Like going to the mall in gunfire. Finally, I'll note that Dirk Ashton will be appearing in Monroeville, Pennsylvania on June 10th through 12th. If you didn't know it, he was featured in the 1990 version of Night of the Living Dead. He will be dressed and made up to resemble the zombie that he portrayed in that film. And you can take photos with him. And I assume he'll have a booth so you can do autographs and the like. So if you're in the area, check him out. 